Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Father, we're grateful for your word. Lord, we just are bombarded every day in so many different ways with messages. And we know that so many of them are untrue or half-truths or just far-fetched opinions, and it is good to gather and know we are under the instruction of the Creator God, because that is where we are looking for instruction and teaching and encouragement this morning from His Word, spoken through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as the Word itself says. And so as we study this passage today, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your words to us this day, and to the end we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I heard she wanted to move back to her hometown to start afresh. She had recently gotten divorced. It had been a couple of decades, and she had been away from home. And she just needed a fresh start, and strangely enough, thought, let me move back home to an area that's familiar with me for a fresh start. All the things that she did as she settled into back home with a new apartment was to make an appointment with a dentist. She got off the phone with the receptionist, and it was just about that time she looked down at the name and said, I think I went to school with this guy. Well, she thought, well, find out when I see him next week at the appointment. Sure enough, she was there, meets the dental hygienist, her teeth are clean, and she's sitting there as he walks in, And she knew right away, this old guy was not in my class. She could tell he was balding. No jokes as you're looking up here. She could tell that he just looked, uh, you know, not fit like the picture that she knew from the yearbook 20 years ago was. She even listened and heard as he straightened up his back from the dental chair, just a little groan, the way an old guy groans. And so she thought, there's no way it's him, but before she left out of the dentist chair, she just said, I I gotta ask. She said, did you go to school around here? He said, yeah, I I went to high school here, graduated in 99. Yeah, you were in my class, she says. And she happened to say it at the time that he still had his little dental binoculars on, and he went from looking at her incisors and her molars to her face as he leaned back tried to scan the yearbook in his mind, and he lifted up the glasses and said, well, which class of mine did you teach? (laughs) Oh, for a better body. You know, it's not just older people that begin to look in the mirror and say, when did this old guy, this old lady show up? You know, we spend our lives wishing for a better body. I can think of just being a young boy. You know, you, you, you start yearning for a body that's taller. And then you shoot up, and you're skinny as a rail. And you want to fill out. You want to put some meat on your bones. And you fill out a little bit of its meat. <laughs> and then you spend the rest of your life wishing you hadn't wished for filling out. Oh, it's a tough thing. You know, they, they say, and I, I agree, that, that uh, 
women, you and gals, you really are ahead of us men uh, in so many ways. You, you mature just mentally, you know, so often spiritually and physically. You mature more than us. But we have you beat in one area. I read a study a few years ago that as men, we get comfortable with these bodies God has given us on average at the age of 49. <laughs> and we're a decade ahead of you because it takes you another 10 years before you get comfortable in your own skin, according to at least one study. Well, we all want, in some way or another, a better body. And this passage is about a better body. But it's addressed to us in this life, even though it looks to the future. And it has probably a more concentrated dose of what our bodies for all eternity will be like than any other place in the scriptures. And so let's begin by looking at this passage and even looking at this very first question that the Apostle Paul poses. You would seem that he's the one asking the question, but really, he's not the one asking the question. It no doubt was a question circulating among the church at that time. And he's basically just repeating it. And he says at the beginning there in verse 35, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he replies, you fool. In the ESV, you foolish person. Now, I know that we live in a, in a climate which a lot of questions are answered on news interviews in a way that suggests a pretty harsh answer. It's really confrontation, confrontational. And, and whether they say it or not, the person answering the question is, is thinking, that's a stupid question, or that's a gotcha question, or that's a question that whatever I say, you're going to twist. But Paul's motives are not, you know, wrapped up in a sinful response when he says, you fool. We've got to step back from, from the kinds of things we're used to hearing on the newsreel and the, in the interactions and realizing he, he's reaching back to, to the way that a fool was described even in the Old Testament, Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. And so when Paul says to this crowd, you fool, you foolish person, he's, he's saying to them, you are asking a question that is worth asking, but how you're going about it and your thinking is like a fool because you are not beginning and seeing God as part of that answer. The, the biggest obstacle to your thinking is your beginning and ending with your thinking and not involving God in the answer. It'd be a bit like wanting to get on I-70 here in Denver that runs from one coast to the other and saying, I want to drive to the East Coast, and as you approach the ramp, you just follow underneath the sign that says I-70 West, San Francisco. From the start, you're going in the wrong direction, and you won't get to the right place. So even in this Initially, harsh-sounding answer, Paul's emphasizing we need to start with God and his instruction and his plans and what he has revealed is in our answer. I want to offer just a little summary, a little quick, very quick synopsis of what I think the next key points are in, in this uh, teaching. 
And, and these points are this, that, that he's going to say that this, this present body, this earthly body that you all and, and I have, is like a seed, a kernel that must die to give life to something much better. He's going to talk about the fact that our future bodies, like bodies on earth of all kinds of humans and all kinds of creatures, are designed by God for their purposes. He's going to say that there is a glory to this future body. It will wonderfully exceed what we have today. And he's going to say that the greatest transformation is that this body will be so in tune that it's, it's as if it is energized by God's very spirit in a way that, that doesn't happen in this life, in this sinful, in this, this, this life that has, is not what we will one day experience. So let's look at, first of all, verses 36 and 37, where we see that this teaching says we're like a planted seed. I start in the second half of verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or some other grain. Now, with this teaching here, he begins a theme that will be evident as we go through this passage. It's a theme that, that, that some have called a theme of continuity and discontinuity as it relates to our bodies today and in the future. That, that Paul will help us understand, as, as the Holy Spirit is instructing him and passing it on to us, that there are aspects in which there is continuity between our present bodies and what we will have in the future. And there's aspects where there's clear discontinuity, a clear transformation, a clear change. And one of the things that is, is there is, is the idea of, of, in this teaching of a, of a kernel or of a seed is that there's continuity between the seed of a plant and what it produces. They might look very different, but there's continuity. One in God's plan and God's design leads to the other. But in the same way, there's some discontinuity that that seed must die. It, it must go away to get to the place where there is something new that has come from it. You know, I saw this as a young child with one of our neighbors. She had on the south side of her house a flower bed. It extended easily uh, as wide as the curved part of this stage, 20, 25 feet. Marigolds were there year after year. They lasted all summer long back in the Maryland sun where I grew up. And, and I knew that, that these marigolds just filled out this, this flower bed in their browns and yellows all summer long. And, and I also knew that my mom had said she never buys new seeds. I knew that the same plants also don't make it through the winter. And I was there one time near the end of summer, probably was even the very start of fall, when she was going through and she was plucking up the marigolds and throwing them in a trash bin so she could haul them out and have her husband burn them in the old 55-gallon drum out back. And, and, and I remember her taking a few of the plants that had been a, a flower on the end, had turned to seeds, crushing them in her hands, and letting him run down on a sheet that she would then be able to scoop up and put in a mason jar. And I knew that the next summer, 
because early in the spring she would go out and work that little bit of, of soil, put a little fertilizer in it, put the seeds in it. I knew that those seeds that spent the winter in the garage, in the mason jar, behind the rakes, stuffed behind the snow shovel, would lead to a crop of marigolds year after year. And as I saw that, I saw that there is continuity year after year in God's cycle and his plans. That seeds lead to something marvelous. That's his plan. But I also knew that that I couldn't dig in the soil and find the seeds that she had planted in the spring if I went out there in the middle of July, dug out among the marigolds and tried to find any of these seeds, these little kernels that had led to it. You don't have a kernel and the wheat stalk it produces at the same time any more than you have an acorn and the oak tree it produces. And you don't find a caterpillar and the butterfly it produces at the same time. It's one or the other, and in God's design, in the continuity of things, one leads to the other. We see in the next verses, 38 and 39, that that it's so clear that, that God needs to make sure we know it, that it's his design. So Paul says... In here in verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And his teaching will go on to basically tell us, and another for earth, and another for heaven, as it pertains to our earthly, to our human bodies. You know, the message here is that there is creativity and diversity among what God has done in his creation of animals and fish and birds, and even in humans, there is such creativity, and there's such diversity, and there's such evidence of design for their purposes, and, and so Paul is able to say, look at, look at all the animals that are there and the fish and the birds. It's so evident God had a plan for each one. God had a design for what he was doing. He didn't just have one size fits all wings that fit both the hummingbird and the eagle. God had a design in mind when, when he created the Chinook Sanum, and that after they have left the middle portion of Idaho, head out to the Pacific Ocean, wander up to Alaska for a few years, and then they begin their journey back at the Pacific Ocean, heading up the Columbia River, 900 miles, coming up 7,000 feet of elevation to put their eggs where they grew up. God had a design. And he has a design for the Maranook little snail that lives the lowest of any creature we've ever found, five miles under the ground. With pressures that they estimate are are over 20,000 pounds per square inch. And I'm told as humans, we start falling apart at 50 and by 400, we're we're history if we have that kind of pressure on us. He designed all these different animals and, and birds and fish. And so Paul is just making the obvious point that if God in this earthly existence we can observe has demonstrated his creative, purposeful design in the various living creatures that are there, he is more than capable and will demonstrate that he has a design for our human bodies that will fit 
what our existence and our place for all eternity. It's a better body designed for heaven, and God is going to give that to us. It's better also, as we see in verses 40 to 43, in some some very significant ways. It says, I'm going to look at verse 42 and 43 in particular. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So so let's compare. What is he saying here? He's saying, let's talk about the body you have now. This earthly body you have today. This body you have today is perishable. It's a body of dishonor compared to what's ahead. It's a body that right now is is weak. It is not just prone to weakness. It has weakness. And it looks ahead to a body that's imperishable, glorious, and powerful. Well, these words such as weakness, to me, that's perhaps the easiest one. Let's tackle that first quickly. Weakness is that which we know, particularly as we age, as we get older... Just uh, yesterday, midday, I was in Maryland, believe it or not, and I was with my brother, just a few months younger than me. We were born in the same year, and we were shooting the basketball around. I said, well, do you want to play some one-on-one? He goes, I'm too old. I'm thinking, I'm older than you. Why are you saying too old? You're making me feel bad here, you know? I'll just pay for it, you know, kind of a thing. But, you know, it's not just middle age and then into our senior years that we know weakness. Just think of, think of children, Think of the fact that God's designed that really for the first number of years they need more rest than we do even as we're adults and even older adults. And when's the last time you saw a baby saying, I've been up 16 hours, got to get a few winks, you know? And I see some teenage, Kyle, I see you looking at me there and you're thinking, I'm a beefy, strong teenager. I'm not weak like you, buddy. Well... Why don't we have a Zoom chat about 12 hours into your next 24 hours flu bug? And we'll see what weakness is like. Maybe we mostly experience it as sickness or injuries in our younger years, but we know, we all know what it's like to be weak, to need rest, to need recuperation, to need to get better. Yeah, weakness will give way, it says, to, to power to a time when we don't experience any of those things. It says we're perishable. Now, it could easily have said in this that that, uh, instead of what is perishable will lead to what's imperishable, it could have easily said what is sown will die. What is raised will not die. It could have easily said that. And it would be true. But perishable, the word that Paul says here, make sure we remind ourselves it's not just that this body here, if it, if, unless the Lord comes in our lifetime, will die. He's, he's making the point that we all know that the death is a process. That decay and the winding down happens long before death for us. The Greek word, phthora, 
Sounds like it should be a Norwegian name with very few syllables. There are a lot of, a lot of consonants and no, no vowels. But the Greek word means to spoil, to decay, to experience ruin. Death, it means the death and the relentless march towards death. I don't know if you've babysat or certainly if you've been a parent or a grandparent, you've seen a child pour a large glass of milk like twice their body weight. And they drink a little bit, and you're thinking, this milk's expensive, and there's at least half of it left, right, Summer? And what do you say to them? You're wasting this milk. Drink it. And the bargaining starts. I'll get to it later. And so they get a little plastic wrap and hermetically seal it by placing it on at least three-quarters of the top of it. And they know your life is busy, And they reach down as they go over to the fridge when you're not looking and put it on the third shelf behind the pickles that you bought last July 4th, meaning last summer, not this summer. He said, I'm golden. Mom will never find this. Mom finds it. It is three months later, and she summons you. Get down here and drink your milk. But even her most evil desires... Give way to the thought, I will pay a price if they get sick. So, she realizes I won't make them drink it. What has happened to that milk? Obviously, it's no good anymore. Was there a time that she could have rescued it, set the alarm clock for 11.59 on the day before the expiration date? Get down here and drink your milk. It spoils in 60 seconds. It's a process of spoiling. It's a process of decay. It's a process of just seeing death on its relentless march. Some some Canadian researchers a few years ago looked at 3,500 people, and they did did on tests from young teenagers to older folks, and they did a variety of just mental tests, memory, how quickly can you multitask and do various things. And they found as they did it that they came up with an age in which things started to go downhill with the old brain. How well it worked. How old do you think that was? Did I hear you say 74? You're only off by half a century. 24. Things start slowly winding down. Not quite as sharp. Well is Paul uses the words, you will sow a perishable body and reap an imperishable body. He is speaking a great word of encouragement to us. He is saying far more than than God will not just banish death. He is going to banish all the processes of winding down, of being hurt, of experiencing pain, of experiencing just aches and deterioration, of seeing our bodies spoil in any way. What a great thought. And so it's not surprising that he can say, this body is really almost a body of dishonor in comparison to what's ahead, a body of glory. It's not dishonorable in the fact that it's shameful or or evil. God made this body. There was no sin when he made the first human bodies. 
but it's a body that in comparison to what's ahead, it's almost a dishonorable body in comparison to the glory of what's ahead. He'll say it this way in Philippians 3, verse 21, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And then he says in verses 44 to 48 that it's a body that is energized by God's spirit as it's fit for heaven. In some ways, this, these next verses are, are some of the more challenging that are here. So I preface them quickly with just a couple of questions before I, I read the verses. Will we become spirits like Christian ghosts that float around and lack bodies? What force, what forces will control and energize these future bodies? Well, let's see what the truth is. Let's see what the scriptures say. Begins in verse 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, as in Adam of Adam and Eve, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us now with these bodies today. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So I ask the question, will we become spirits? Will we be Christian ghosts? When we think of just how people at, often at a, at a funeral... <coughs> And, and we see and hear things and poems and, and things spoken. of. I know someone, I know they're here. We hear a lot of wishful thinking that people say in their grief. But very little, I'm afraid, much of the time, is grounded in the truths that we're taught. It says right here we, that we do not become spirits, we don't become Christian ghosts. We exchange a natural earthly body for a spiritual body. A body that is like the man of heaven, the Lord Jesus. Well, I'm going to look ahead and just uh, say, what does it mean when we think of just Christ's resurrected body and how that gives us a glimpse of what our bodies might be in the future? We base Thinking about that on, on, first of all, just this last verse, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, referring to Jesus. We're going to bear the image of, of Christ, this man of heaven, in his resurrected state. And we can also add Philippians 3.21. Jesus is going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so we have a portion of Scripture, we mostly get to it on Easter, that gives us some insight that we can hold on to as to, to what these future bodies, these spiritual bodies, will be like. And I, I just want to emphasize those things that are the most clear and not speculative, things that, that are right there in the Scriptures for us to see. I, I, we'll have bodies that in some way or another are recognizable. 
The passage from Luke 24, I put it in your outline there, a recognizable body, comes from just that road to Emmaus when these two disciples are talking with Jesus. He's explaining things on that Easter midday or afternoon. They sit down and eat, and all of a sudden, what does it say? As Jesus began to break the bread in front of them, it says, their eyes were open and they recognized him. We get the same you know, clear impression of Mary recognizing Jesus, even in her grief outside the garden tomb. The disciples recognizing Jesus when they saw him. They're in disbelief in one sense, but they recognized him. Our bodies will have to see exactly what that means, but will be recognizable. Not, not some transformation we're all wandering around who are you again? Well, you know, somebody we, we knew all our lives. I, I'm fascinated what that's going to look like and be like. But frankly, I'm comforted by that too. I look forward to seeing you again in a different place for all eternity. It was a body that was touchable. It was a body that had flesh and bones. Jesus' body in his resurrected state. This state in which he says, we will bear that same image, or as it says in Philippians, that we, our body will be like his glorious body. So to his, to his disciples in Luke 24, he holds out his hand and says, see my hand, see my feet. He says, it is me, touch me, see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I looked at this passage for many a year and heard, heard it for many years, but it just struck me this past week or two studying this more. We'll, we'll have flesh and bones. I'm not sure how they will be different in terms of the, the chemistry. God will, will show us that at another time. But Jesus here says we do have bodies. We'll have flesh and bones that is touchable, that can be seen as recognizable. He comes out again with just that little thing that Jesus said to Mary Magdalene. Remember in the garden, she recognizes him, and, and she just must have given him a bear hug is all I could have pictured. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. I can't imagine Mary just going, you know, kind of sweeping through the air. Where are you, Jesus the ghost? You know, she's holding on to a body. And it was on that same Easter morning in uh, Matthew 28, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus walking into the room, he, Matthew puts this detail in. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They did touch him. It wasn't just an invitation, as we saw in Luke 24. They did. They took him up on his offer and touched his physical, though now resurrected and changed body. It's a body that will be able to eat. Jesus decided he wanted to prove that to them in Luke 24. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Strangely, that's, that little detail is, is one of the ones I just take the most delight in, of the things that are going to be like. Because I just picture wanting to sit down, John, and just have a lot of good meals for all eternity with you. Reed and Kathy, I love it in this lifetime so much. I look forward to doing that many a time. The, the, the scriptures talk about the, the banquet of heaven. And, 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 and I don't think we'll probably need to eat for energy. I just got a feeling that our, our bodies will be energized in a way. We don't need to eat. But the enjoyment of one another's company in God's presence. Oh, I'm just looking forward to that. And, and so we see 
Jesus making the point, I can eat. As his disciples uh, gave him something to eat. And, and there's going to be a degree to which these bodies are changed, that they're free from, from natural laws that subject our bodies today. And I give the, the two obvious examples of Jesus. It says in one passage in John 20 that the doors were locked, and what happened? Jesus showed up in their midst. And then that other time, those same disciples that recognized Jesus on the Emmaus Road, he's breaking bread. Their eyes were open, they recognized him, and then what does it say? And he vanished. So there'll be aspects, we'll figure that out too and enjoy the freedom from some of the natural laws. Maybe all of them, maybe some of them, I don't know. But we see that these bodies are different by God's design in the future. Well, I want to offer some application because I think that knowing a better body awaits changes things today. I think it does. And one of the ways, I think, is that I think it lets us give more effort to wearing out this body serving Jesus than preserving it for ourselves. I wanted to, I, I wrestled with how to phrase that because I don't think the scriptures teach us to just, just be careless and to, to want to be injured for Jesus or to want to be burnt out for God. But isn't there a degree to which knowing our future is secure, knowing our better body will last for all eternity and God has plans for it, that we can step back and say, I, I want to focus more on using this body today to serve Jesus, and maybe in some ways even wearing it out a bit, than just thinking, this is all I have. And I'm going to invest all my money and energy and, and, and time thinking about how to preserve this body that is steadily deteriorating. Maybe I've shared the quote before, but it sure strikes me as the kind of thinking that, that is reflected in this is all it is. When Joan Collins said, being born beautiful is like being born poor, being born rich and growing steadily poor. What a statement that we see in, in not just Hollywood and, and people in the limelight, but we see in our own lives, if we're not careful, of just an, uh, uh, an excessive focus on trying to preserve what we have in, in the body and the appearance that we have that might well get in the way of serving more heartily the Lord during this lifetime. I, I sought to choose just my encouragement and challenge carefully to say give more effort, knowing we do need to be stewards of our body. We do need to take care of it, in large part because we want to serve the Lord for as long as the day is appointed and in a way that's healthy. But there is a matter of priority there. I think we can endure the scars and the disabilities and the decline and even the pain, knowing these things will soon be banished for good. I, I, I would say that I think there's a, a message that's probably a bit unique for each one here as to, as to what that might mean. There, there's a message that's for someone who, from a young age, has been in a wheelchair or, 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 or has an issue with their body that they've never been able to really participate in sports from a young age. They've borne that. I think of a gal that we've known that from a young age 
was beautiful up to a certain point in her grade school years and due to a bad infection and unfortunate surgery, is honestly quite disfigured now, well into her 30s on one side of her face. And I think the father, whether it's a scar, a deformity, uh, some other aspect of just even the decline that comes with age, and perhaps for whatever reason your body's experienced that at a, at a tougher, more rapid rate than someone else your age. Whatever it is that might weigh you down, I think you need to hear the Father say, these will not be taken to heaven. Maybe there's some that see approaching pain, approaching decline. Could be a diagnosis recently of of something. Could be cancer. And you think of the decline or pain of treatment that's ahead. Might be that You just realize you just had a major injury or you have surgery in store to try to get back to where you wanted to be and you've got those things ahead. And I think the Father would say, I'm with you and these things compared to eternity are really only for a short time. Look ahead and know the hope of a body, a better body that I fitted for heaven for you. They will not decline, will not experience pain. Finally, I want to suggest that there's reason to praise our God who is fitting us for heaven, preparing us by actually fitting us in this body for heaven rather than just taking us there. And I'm borrowing the words from a song that we won't sing in the middle of August, but we'll surely sing in the middle of December. The song Away in a Manger was written in the 1880s and I, I, I was reading an article by uh, a woman that said, you know, I, I liked the song, loved it as a kid. Honestly, it's a pretty childlike song. But she said there's one little phrase in there in one of the variations on the verse 3 that I've held on to. It's the final line of verse 3 when you sing it this way. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever. And love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care. And fit us for heaven. Not just take us for heaven like some versions have. Fit us for heaven to live with thee there. You know, that's what this passage is about, isn't it? It's about fitting us for heaven. It began in verse 3 of this same chapter when Paul says, I fit you for heaven by sharing the gospel with you, giving you what is of first importance, that Christ Jesus came and died for your sins. That is the first and most important step of being fit for heaven in God's plan. The gospel message, you are separated from, you are unfit for heaven, friend. I am unfit for heaven apart from the work of Jesus Christ in embracing that. But God's work, having done what is of first importance in fitting us for heaven, he now shares in these verses we've looked at that he fits us for heaven by his design with a body that is perfect for that new home. It's a body that will know no decay and no pain. One that will have no injuries, no sick days, no aging. It's a body that will have no wrinkling, no need for rehab. No surgery, no aches, no dementia, no strokes, no SIDS, no suicidal tendencies, no depression. It will be a body fit for heaven 
that will be transformed, that others will recognize us as they invite us to enjoy a meal together. There will be a body that is alive and energized by God's Spirit. It is a body that will enjoy forever God's presence. You see, my friends, that with this great God fitting us for heaven according to his plan, knowing that a better body awaits indeed can change things for us today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just these words from your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that if what I've said has been faithful to them, you would encourage each one of us to long to be right with you, first of all, And second of all, to just enjoy this thought that you are preparing not just a place, but a body that will be a perfect fit for this place. Your presence forever to enjoy you. May our teaching today and our thinking on your word bless us this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.